Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, and we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Technology innovation comes from technologists, but also from visionaries and leaders. You know, we, we look to luminaries like Elon Musk and Sergey and Larry, the Google guys, and of course, Steve Jobs to show us the future and challenge our thinking about what's possible. Today, we get to meet a tech pioneer whose street cred is comparable to all of the greats. Phil McKinney's an innovator, a thinker, a creator, an author, a speaker. He's the former CTO of HP who has built teams that have innovated award-winning technologies and products currently used by a half a billion people worldwide. Phil's also the CEO of Cable Labs where he leads a team driving innovation in the broadband industry. Phil's been recognized widely in the media. Uh, notable references include Vanity Fair of all sources referring to him as the innovation guru. MSNBC and Fox Business call him the gadget guy. The San Jose Mercury News calls him the chief seer. I call him a living legend and uh, a walking Silicon Valley tech time capsule. I will also mention that uh, Phil is an Iron Man of podcasting. He's the host of the podcast Killer Innovations, which is the longest running produced podcast in history. Running for 17 years, Phil's about to start his 18th season in just a few weeks. He explores topics related to innovation, creativity, human potential, and leadership. Thanks to recent guest Mamoon Samaha for the introduction to Phil. And without further ado, Phil, it really is uh, my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you uh, share a little bit more about your illustrious uh, career. Dan, thanks for having me uh, on the show. And uh, yeah, we do have a common connection through uh, Mamoon when he uh, was part of my innovation team at Hewlett Packard. So uh, a little bit more on me. Uh, my background is I'm a software engineer by training um, and uh, spent uh, my early uh, portion of my career in Silicon Valley in the 80s. And then I, as I jokingly refer to it as, I achieved escape velocity and uh, left the valley. Um, I got recruited. One of the technologies I was working on got funded by Frontneck Venture Capital out of Chicago. So uh, I went back to Chicago, which is where I originally was from, and then I ended up in D.C. and London and Johannesburg and Hong Kong, <laughs> and then finally made myself back to the States. And then... Uh, was one of the five founders at Telligent, fixed wireless provider in the late 90s. Um, we grew that, took, did, did the IPO, I cashed out. That was my first retirement. And then um, Carly and the team at HP reached out for me to come and help. I agreed to go at HP for one year to help, and that turned into a decade at, uh, at HP. And then uh, retired uh, out of HP at the end of 11. That was my second retirement. My book, uh, Beyond the Obvious, was coming out in February of 12. That was the plan. 
And uh, that lasted uh, five months before I got talked into coming to Cable Labs. I agreed to come here for three years to help it get back up on uh, in uh, going in the, in the right direction. Cable Labs has been around for a long time, since the late 80s. But uh, I stepped in in June of 12. And uh, three years now has turned into nine, almost 10 years here at uh, Cable Labs. So as my wife says, uh, stop using the R word because it's absolutely meaningless. Um, and uh, but uh, now it's uh, it's uh, it's great. We're uh, we're based here in Colorado. Love Colorado and uh, having a, having a blast uh, working on uh, the next generation broadband that we all get to enjoy. So you've accomplished so much, and yet you've clearly failed at retiring. <laughs> <laughs> No, we got we got connected through Mamoon, who is uh, uh, very public about uh, how much he admires you as his role model. Uh, before we started taping, you tell me about some of the amazing CEOs you've worked for, uh, mm-hmm. Carly and Mark Herb and Leo, et cetera, on down the line and your, your, your role at Intelligent. Who are your role models in business and, and in life as well? Well, the, the the story I always tell is about my first mentor, a guy by the name of Bob Davis. So uh, I'll age myself, but I'll really age Bob. And that is, Bob was one of the original teams on a software company called Colonet, founded by John Colonet. It was one of the first IBM mainframe software companies. <laughs> this is way before PCs. And uh, Bob was uh, worked for John and... Uh, Colonet actually got acquired by CA, so Computer Associates, part of what originally formed Computer Associates was Colonet. And so Bob left, he went with a company that was a division of Prentice Hall in Chicago, and Bob hired me my first job. So I'm a barely 21-year-old kid coming in, and uh, and that, you know I didn't know him. He had read an article. I was an undergraduate researcher at the University of Illinois in computer graphics. And I was fortunate to have some of my research published. Bob had read it and reached out and recruited me. And that's how I ended up hooking up with him. And he and I, you know, my my book was is dedicated to him. And I talk about him all the time as really the motivation behind the podcast because you don't realize how important your mentors really are to really getting you set on the right path. So in the case of Bob early on, he said, look, you could be a great software engineer, you know, knock yourself out. But he said, you know, he, he was the person who stood, you know, stood by me and said, no, I think you've got something more than just being a great software engineer. But to do that, you have to become what he refers to as a T-shaped individual. I-shaped, meaning you're really, really deep, 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 deep in one area. T-shaped, meaning you have to have an expertise in one area, but you have to have a variety of experiences, a variety of roles across a wide range of industries. And that's what really builds your skill to be able to literally take on anything that gets thrown at you, taking on things that you you don't even know about, but you're like, hey, it's kind of like what I did over here at this job or over here on this job. And and you make it work. So Bob put me on this rotation. I spent six months in sales, six months in marketing, and six months in finance. And you know, I did every every role that was in there. While um, he then appointed me to be the new manager of the software product group 
of the company. And I was barely 21 years old as a manager. I mean, talk about, you know, coming in with your eyes wide open and scared to death that you're going to screw up or whatever. But Bob and I ended up going to three companies together. It was actually Bob got recruited to a company in Silicon Valley and he brought me with. That's how I ended up in the Valley, you know, in the early 80s. And uh, and later on in life, I asked him, I said, how do I pay you back? And he laughs. He goes, yeah, you can't pay me back. You got to pay it forward. And so uh, the podcast got started really in 2005 as just kind of a little experiment to see, you know, if anybody was listening to this new thing called podcasting. And back then there were no tools. You had to hand code your RSS feeds because there was no tools to build, automatically build RSS. I mean, it was crazy back then in the early days. And uh, the podcast got legs, got traction, and then you know, I'm a big believer in internships and mentoring and finding people who, who uh, are, uh, who, you know, who've got real potential that you can come alongside. And it's not reflecting back on me, just like Bob's never taken, you know, never stand, never stood up and tried to claim credit for any of my success. Success is within the individual, but it's helping someone kind of avoid the landmines and let them learn from your lessons learned, you know, and, then you get this amplification effect. And I mean, you know, I've got, you know, interns that have gone on to um, just absolutely phenomenal careers. Curtis Brown runs gaming products at Logitech and uh, Lee Chen was the founder of Major League Gaming. So if you like esports and MLG, Lee Chen, he was one, uh, he was an, he was one of my early interns back at Telligent and, uh, you know, a whole slew of them. And these guys have just done absolutely, uh, you know, phenomenal. And they all know each other because I've all introduced them to each other because they've been that helps build up a network. Because look, careers are hard. Life is hard. Balancing life is hard. If you think you can do, if you think it's all you and doing it on your own, you're, you're fooling yourself, right? It's, it's about your network and not just your network for contacts. Can you get a deal? But I mean, finding those people who could really come along and who are also going to be brutally honest with you, right? Don't don't let your PR go to your head or, you know, some article someone writes about you making you sound like, you know, you're you're some amazing individual. You know, guess what? <laughs> we we all are. Uh, we all come from the same mold, right? We're all flawed individuals and you need people around you that are going to yell BS when you're when you're let, when you're letting uh, you're letting the press go to your head and thinking that you're better than you are, and uh, yeah, so you know, for me, you know, if you ask me who, you know, and it's still, you know, Bob's now long retired, and he drives a school bus in Phoenix, Arizona, in his retirement for kids, special needs kids, and that's what he does in his retirement, and uh, and in fact, he hates it because I'm, you know, when I mention him and he hears about it or something from common friends, he constantly asks me to kind of tone it down i'm like tough dude <laughs> you get the you know you don't know how much i appreciate what he what you did what he did for me early in my career i just i couldn't imagine where i'd be today without it incredible story i hope he's listening <laughs> we'll have to make sure we share this with him now for more than 17 years every week you talk about innovation in the creative process can creativity be taught can it be learned? And for our listeners who are looking to say, be more creative, what's your coaching? What do they do? 
I am a big believer that you can learn it. Now, just like anybody can learn to play basketball, not all of us are Michael Jordans at the same time, but you have a muscle. I think of creativity as literally a muscle that you need to exercise and you need to continue to exercise. Um, you know, if, you, if you're a couch potato on a Friday, you don't get up and say, oh, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon on Monday and you go run it, right? That's, you're not going to have a good outcome. So you get up, you walk around the block for a couple of weeks and you start jogging around the block. Then you start running and then it's two blocks and you do a little bit longer and you build up to it. The same thing applies to creativity. If you haven't been, if you have not been exercising your creative muscle, it's hard. It's like being a couch potato and you're coming up and you're trying to go out there. And, and look, there's a lot of things that hold people back. Um, you know, one area that I think it does a disservice to people's creativity is the educational system. Look, we're all born naturally creative, right? I have five grandkids. The oldest is nine down to six. I sat around with those grandkids and watch what they do. And they are just naturally born as creatives. You know, they can turn a tape, uh, toilet paper roll into some game or whatever in the process. And I did this little experiment where I went into and I, and I was doing some work for the U.S. Department of Education as a pro bono project trying to help innovate K-12 education here in the United States. And I went into schools, talked to teachers and talked to classrooms. And, and I do a lot of public speaking, big events, that type of thing. And I always ask people, how many people here think of themselves as highly creative, right? And actually, it's shocking how few people in, an, in a large audience think of themselves as creative. Oh, that's somebody else's job. They got the special DNA. I didn't get it. Those, you know, it's a self-doubt thing. What happens in the school system? You go into a kindergarten class and you ask kids to show you a dance or show you some artwork or sing you a song they invented. Boom. Every kid in the classroom wants to do it. Now do it every class up till 12th grade. When you get to 12th grade, the only kid in 12th grade that wants to do it is the weird kid nobody wants to eat lunch with in the cafeteria. Right. And we've just we've we built in this concept of conformity and we want to conform. We don't want to stand out. We want to we dress a certain way. We act a certain way. And that just crushes um, any form of that creative output. And then you go to college. It's all about the test. You know, so we, we continue to teach people to be really good test takers. We've kind of lost the, the art of creative of problem solving, creative thinking, critical thinking skills. Then they graduate. And the number one skill for the last five years on the annual survey, the top skill that CEOs hire for is creativity. So here we are. We take it out of the system. We teach conformity, get their grade, get their degree. And then instantly we want everybody to be highly creative. <laughs> and the odds of success, pretty slow. And so you then people have to go find it. But what, what's holding it back? Fear of failure. Number one, if I fail, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to be successful. It tends to be the number one reason. Oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to show. I'm not going to contribute. I'm going to kind of set back, um, you know, the fear of what other people might think of you, right? The view that you're not creative, right? I don't know how to be creative. I'm not an artist. I'm not, not a musician. There's lots of ways to be creative. You don't have to be an amazing artist or play guitar and get on stage. There's a, the form of creativity 
um, ha- takes on a wide range, a wide palette that you can apply it to anything. So one of the skills that we teach in the workshops right out of the gate is, is to kind of, how do you spark that, that first creative idea to kind of convince yourself that you are creative? And that is through the power of questions. Questions have a very unique, distinct power. If I ask you a question, you cannot stop yourself from answering it. So if I ask you, what is half of 13? You've calculated the answer. And now you're back listening to me. Now, if you come back and tell me the answer is six and a half, if I'm doing a math test, you get an A. I'm doing a creativity test, eh, I'd give you a C minus. Why? Because you stopped at the first obvious answer. And 99% of the people think of it as a test, like you're back in school, I got the answer, write the answer down, move on to the next problem. Stopping at that first obvious answer, that's where the problem lies. 99% of your competitors, 99% of the people who are looking at a problem will stop at the first answer. The real breakthroughs come through when you can get beyond that first obvious answer. You can continue to dig. If I reword the question slightly differently and I say, how many different ways could you answer the question, what is half of 13? Now you're thinking completely differently. If it's Roman numeral 13, you split it vertically, it's 11 and 2. You split it horizontally, it's Roman numeral 8 and 8. There's 13 cards in a deck of card. What's the middle card? You can do the write out the word, T-H-I-R, split it, T-E-N, right? In fact, there's a professor who uses my book in her course, and this is actually one portion that's in the book, this half of 13 question. And the record for any one of her classes has found is 31 ways to answer the question. How many different ways could you answer what is half of 13? So now apply that to your problems. Don't stop at the first obvious. But if you think about how to word questions in such a way and not stop at that first answer, you are all of a sudden flooded with ideas. It just They just naturally emerge. And then if you have a process to find figure out which one's the better idea, which ones you should spend some time on, you will never run out of ideas. This fallacy that, oh, there's only a limited number, and when I got that really good one, I got to smother it because it's the only one I'm ever going to get in my life. Yes, it is. You will never hit the bottom of the well of your ideas. You just have to find a way to bring them up and discover them and move them forward. So. Don't have that fear of failure. Don't worry about what other people are going to say about you. And use questions to help you respark, refine, rediscover that natural creativity that we are all born with. It's not a gift of DNA. We are all naturally highly creative. We just need to rediscover it. You're talking to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and CXOs that are building teams, building organizations. What are the attributes of the best performing teams and cultures if you're using creativity as a measurement of of effectiveness? Well, the way, well, I use what's called the seven laws of innovation. And I wrote this blog post um, the weekend after kind of everything went nuts at HP when, it, when they decided to sell Palm and 
they were going to dump the PC group and all of that out of a little out of frustration. Well, I didn't realize how wide that article was going to go. Fast Company put it front page in the magazine. And I mean, it went nuts. But I'd been working on it for a while, thinking back on my, at that time, you know, uh, 30-year career in the innovation game. You know, what are those characteristics, right? Rule number one, law of leadership. You got to have top leaders, right? You just have to have the law. You got to, leaders have got to get it. They got to walk the walk, you know, and, and talk the talk. They just, they can't fake it. You got to have leaders who really understand it. You got to have the law of resources. You got to have committed resources. You can't play the game of, of uh, you know, using R and D as a manipulation to make your quarterly you know results. Uh, uh, you know, you've got to have the law of patience. Innovation takes longer than you think. You know, you you can't you, you know a Gantt chart isn't going to do you a squat if you're really doing you know highly innovative, highly uh, creative work. Um, you know, you got to have the, the law of what I call the BHAG. You got to have the bold, hairy, audacious goal. You got to have the thing that's going to motivate your team. That's going to give your team a clear vision to get them across the goal line. Um, when it's all, when it's all said and done, um, you know, so, you know, there are these characteristics, um, that the culture one though, that there is a, one of the seven laws is the law of culture. And it's the one that most people spend the least amount of time on, but that can have the biggest impact. Culture um, is one that I've learned over my career. When you do it wrong, it can go really, really bad, really fast. Uh, the example I use is Intelligent. We were five people who were the original starters at Intelligent. And, you know, we grew like a rocket. I mean, at one point, I was I was needing you know to hire you know something in the neighborhood of like uh, thirty five people hire thirty five people a day seven days a week, not interview, hire thirty five people a day seven days a week for like almost like seven or eight months. That's how many people we were hiring. It just in my organization, my part of the organization, it was insane. So there was no thought of culture. You basically, do you have a pulse? Can you fog a mirror? Can you prove you got some technical competence? Great. Start on Monday. And by the way, here's a signing bonus. We'll pay you a bonus so you start on Monday, which means you kind of don't treat your previous employer. I mean, it was crazy nuts. Well, the problem was nobody focused on the culture. So we were just hiring people because of technical skill. So you ended up with what I call an accidental culture. You know, you get a little bit of this, you get a little bit of that, you get a little bit of this, whatever happens, happens. Oh my gosh. The HR issues we had intelligent are second to none of anything I've ever heard. I win every bet. People always want to say, oh, I was at this company and XYZ happened. I'm like, that's nothing. You you ought to hear this story, right? And then I get to HP and it's like, I got almost like whiplash from one extreme to the other extreme. The HP culture is so incredibly strong. I was fortunate when I first went to HP and I'd been a customer of HP when I was intelligent. I was one of HP's largest customers in North America. I'm buying, I was buying 300, $400 million a year gear on a regular, just ship the truck, ship the truck. You know, we were growing so fast. So I was a customer and always was impressed. And then all of a sudden I'm on the inside 
And I was fortunate. I got to meet uh, Chuck House, who was one of the directors at HP Labs, long retired, but very well known in the Valley, and Art Fong. Art was HP employee number nine, the ninth employee at HP. When I met him, Art was 91, still lived in the same house in Palo Alto. So Art took me under his wing. I would go, he was a, he's a Berkeley grad. So Berkeley playing football, you're in, you're in Art's living room watching football with Art. And Art, I heard, I got to hear all the Bill and Dave stories in the original early days of HP. And what was, and I quickly figured out that a lot of the senior leaders and the board at HP never bothered to learn the HP culture. Culture can, can be incredibly powerful if leaders know how to leverage it. Because if you keep aligned on the culture and you set your vision, you set your BHAG, you set your agenda that leverages that culture, there's nothing that can stop you. Nothing that can stop you. And in the case of innovation, you've got to have a culture that supports collaboration, that, so, that takes out that fear of failure. That people don't 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 aren't even worried about the fact that they're going to get in trouble or get fired. You know, you've got to knock that fear of failure. You've got to put in um, the uh, comfort with risk, the willing to experiment, try things. Bill Hill at one time came in on a weekend and he was he took over a bench and was working on an idea. You know, this is like this would have been in the seventies. Right. So it wasn't like it was a startup, you know, everybody knew who Bill was. Right. But he walked in and somebody had locked up the parts cabinet. Somebody had thought about, you know, oh, someone could walk off with the parts. So Bill went out and got a crowbar and busted the lock off of it and then left a note on the parts cabinet saying never lock this again. Because his view was is if someone comes up with a crazy idea and wants to build something on their bench, let them. Right. Don't don't get in the way. Don't be a speed bump in the in the process of coming up with an experiment or trying something crazy. And so, you know, I went from an organization that had like like the world's worst culture to absolutely by far the 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 best culture I've ever been at. And, you know, albeit cable labs, we're all 235 people, PhD researchers and working on lasers and fiber optics and wireless and et cetera. And uh, I probably drive the organization crazy on my focus on culture, but I learned my, I learned that mistake early on. And it's the advice I give leaders all the time. Yeah. You may be busy building your organization. Think about the culture that becomes your secret weapon, not just for innovation, but just for success in general. It's been a while since you published beyond the obvious right, yeah, but it's certainly yeah yeah it certainly withstood the test of time uh what is uh one let's say a non-obvious uh, example or give it give us a nugget from the book something that surprised you when you were doing the research i don't know there's a lot of things that were in the book when i was uh doing uh you know the research i had you know the book is actually got spawned off of the podcast so um, I was doing the podcast. The podcast had been going on for, well, I guess it would have been 2009, 2010. So fifth year in the podcast. And I get this random call and it turns out that Mark Gerald, who's my agent, <laughs> I didn't know him before. He reaches out and says, hey, but listen to your podcast. You know, I think you got a book in there. And I'm like, yeah, right. He goes, no, no, no. I go, okay. I travel 45 weeks a year on the CTO for Hewlett Packard which was at that time 
Fortune number six, sixth largest company in the world. When do you think I have time to sit down and write a book? But he kept at it and we came in. So basically they, we took a lot of it out of guests and, you know, in those kinds of things. I think the biggest insight was when I started the podcast and when I worked on the book was reverse engineering how I did it, how I innovate. And man, that's hard to do. You know, when you just kind of something, you just do it and it just kind of works for you or you stop or you do it enough times, you just kind of have this little thing you do, you know, and you don't think of it as being something special until you have to like write it down or teach it. I think teaching is one of the best things that any leader can do because it forces you to have to really think deeply about what it is and how you do it. When you can explain it in such a way that somebody else can apply it, then you've kind of boiled it down, um, you know, to its, uh, to its real essence. You know, and I'd always been a big guy on questions, but when I really did the research on the power of questions, and there's been a whole bunch of academic studies, if you want to go nuts, there's lots of writings on that. But questions are kind of a unique thing that the human brain, it, it, it is, it's, it's more than dopamine as far as you ask a question and people want to answer that question. They either want to hurry up and top up and answer it, or they're thinking about it, right? So if you get really good at thinking about crafting really good questions, um, they are unbelievably powerful for good, but you can also use them as a form of manipulation. So there's the flip side to questions also. And that was a little bit surprising because when you think about you know, people out there that have done like really, really bad things and you under and you read like transcripts of their speeches and you and I've, I'm a big collector of questions. So I've collected questions from, you know, very you know prominent, you know, well-known leaders. Margaret Thatcher was phenomenal at asking questions. Ronald, Ronald Reagan was phenomenal for asking uh, questions. But a lot of people don't realize that Adolf Hitler was also very big on asking questions that were not that were actually, you know, what we call leading questions, leading people to a, to a bad conclusion, and you can use it as a form of manipulation. So I think that was probably my insight. I never thought of questions as being good or bad, but they are, you know, but if you know how to do it, it can be, it can be quite effective in uh, unlocking that creative spark inside of you. So Phil, we're, uh, we're just getting started. We're going to have to continue this conversation another time, but uh... Before I can let you off the hot seat, um, I, I want to learn from you. What, what would your advice be to a, a younger version of Phil? <laughs> Try everything. You know, I you know I think that I think there's things that when I look back on if I was, you know, giving myself advice, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, don't let fear hold you back. Even though I've been in this game for for so long, um, you got to be. You just have to be careful of letting fear hold you back. I did a, a talk, I did a TEDx talk at TEDx Boulder. I don't know, it's probably got to be three or four years ago. You can go find it on, on the TEDx and it's on imposter syndrome. And I tell the story of my own struggle with imposter syndrome. And look, we all, we all suffer from it. I'm suffering from imposter syndrome as the CTO at HP. And a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, you got this phenomenal career. You've got this long lineage you know you you know you're well known you know great yeah but look we all we all suffer from self-doubt we all are much more self-critical with ourselves 
than anybody outside would ever be. We would say things in our head to ourselves that nobody even thinks, right? We put too much weight into what other people think of us. Uh, we're overly self-critical because we see everything we do. At the same time, though, people see us as, you know, amazing influencers or coaches or or mentors. We talked about, you know, Mamoon because Mamoon always refers to me and his talks or whatever. And I've done uh, commencement speeches for, you know, for ITU where he teaches uh, at, et cetera. And I'm always, you know, self-conscious, you know, of that. But the one thing I tell in the imposter syndrome is, is that if you're on the outside and you see somebody and they're just doing amazing work, just don't think it. Say something to them. Tell them. Because that simple message is saying, hey, I think you're really, you know, you're, you're kicking butt. You're doing great. You are like, wow, you're doing amazing work. I really love your podcast or I like your book or I like this. Like, you know, whatever it is, that little encouragement can knock down that self-critical and can actually help somebody get over that hump and actually get them to uh, success. Because the, that one advice I would give somebody is, I held that imposter syndrome for way too long. It's that self-critical voice in your head that'll just hold you back. Don't let that happen. I said that was the last question, but one other thing I got to get in. You <laughs> talked earlier about the value of paying it forward. And you were telling me offline uh, about your partnership over the years with Eric and with Zoom mm -hmm. and something the two of you decided to, get, to do together on your podcast. Would you mind mm -hmm. relaying for our audience what that was? Yeah, so uh, Ergen, who is the founder and CEO at uh, Zoom, was a longtime friend. Eric was at um, Cisco. He was part of the original web. He was the original VP of engineering on the WebEx team. I was at at, uh, at HP. So we've known each other for for a long time. For like, well, actually, I got I had an alpha version of Zoom, which we used in the early versions of the show. Um, and then, um, I don't know, it was probably eight years ago, Zoom became a sponsor of the show. And, uh, as part of the, uh, you know, the deal with Eric, cause I, I had started a nonprofit called Hacking Autism when I was at HP, when I retired, HP had me take it with me. They still support it. So does Microsoft and Pepsi and some others, um, and Eric knew about hacking autism and, and knew about some of my other work in Africa, et cetera. And so Eric, you know, had a conversation with Eric. We were having lunch one time and he was asking about it. And I was telling him about, well, I needed to start bringing on some staff to help on the show, et cetera. And I had these ad spots, but I never, what am I going to advertise? I'm not, I'm not doing this for money. <laughs> you know, it's a passion project. Um, so the deal was is Zoom sponsors the show. And what Eric and I do is we give away the ad spots to uh, P as PSAs to nonprofits. So we've given ad spots to Hacking Autism, like when they're leading into a hackathon. Uh, we've done Make-A-Wish Foundation. We've done uh, Disaster Relief. So we did Katrina was probably one of the first ones. We've done Hurricane Michael. We've done the Boulder Fire here in Colorado. We've done a a whole series of uh, when we do PSAs or people send us requests for the PSA. So basically we give them, we give it all away. <laughs> it's basically what it ends up being. It's a way for uh, Eric and I to do something we're both passionate about and uh, have an impact on, on society on a broader sense. And uh, 
you know, it's a, it is a form of, uh, of uh, paying it forward. When you're blessed, pay it forward. Thanks for sharing that. It's a beautiful example. I know it's, it's who you are as a person and wanted the audience to hear, hear that directly from you. That's, uh, gosh, that's all the time we have for today, but we're definitely going to do a, a, a sequel to this. What do you say? You mind coming back, Phil? I'd love to come back. It's been so much fun. Learn more about Phil and his great work. He's philmckinney.com. You can access all of his uh, social channels there. It's uh, McKinney with two N's. And uh, hopefully you'll be hearing more from Phil on this show uh, sometime soon. Uh, but for this week, that's a wrap. Uh, this is your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work. But uh, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>